0: Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. We actually are going to cover a good bit this morning because, as you know, if you were here last week, I kind of punted on the passage last week, so have a little bit of ground to make up. Um, before I actually get to the passage, I have some, some good news to share with you this morning. Um, it's actually good news that I've looked forward to sharing for a number of years now. Uh, after two and a half years of very painful waiting, Julie and I are actually pregnant. So yes, we're, we're very excited. Um, we're very excited! Uh, apparently, the Lord is is making up for lost time because we're pregnant with twins. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're we're having two of them. So, so we are we are very excited. We're very grateful to the Lord. Very thankful for those who prayed for us during the the long years of waiting. Uh, it's it's interesting. Pregnancy brings a lot of changes to life, um, especially to to your wife, to Julie. Um, Pregnancy is really uh, focused, Julie, on on just a few priorities in life. It's really simplified her life. Uh, Julie has a, a number of things that she could spend her time on. She's the graphic designer for the church. She has a lot of relationships and ministries here at Southwood. She has a lot of hobbies she enjoys. She has a lot of friends she loves, and yet... All of those things have taken a distant backseat to um, eating and sleeping. (laughs) Uh, Julie spends most of her waking hours focused on rest and nutrition because those two little babies take a lot of energy. Everything else is, is a distant second place. It doesn't even come close to competing with the priority of taking care of those two lives growing inside of her. Pregnancy has focused her on just what's most important in life. Now, my goal for the passage this morning, my hope from Philippians 3, is that it will do the same thing for us, that it will refocus us on what is most important in life, that it will narrow our focus and simplify our lives so that we see just what counts most in life. So go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. We're actually going to look at everything from verses 2 to 16. It's a rather long passage, but it's all one unified thought. All of this passage is designed to convince us that the highest priority in life is Jesus Christ. Now, the the actual situation, the the context that motivates Paul to talk about our highest priority is actually a a case of false teaching in the church in Philippi. Uh, Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 3. Paul says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Uh, Paul's addressing a particular type of false teaching that was present in Philippi in, in, the, in the back about 2,000 years ago. It's false teaching that Paul had run into often. You, you see this false teaching that he's addressing here throughout the New Testament. It's a group of guys. We call them Judaizers because their desire was to convince Gentiles that the way to be right in God's eyes, the way to be good with God, was through self-effort. Was through obeying the Old Testament law, especially the command of circumcision. Okay? These guys, their beliefs, their attitude of these false teachers, I think is expressed really well in Romans 10. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Basically, these Judaizers, they deny that last sentence. They say, no, no way. Christ, maybe he's good to begin with, but he is not the end of the law. If you want to be great with God, you do it through the law. Now, clearly, Paul doesn't have a lot of patience with these guys. (laughs) Doesn't love these guys very much. Look at the particular descriptions he uses. He starts by calling them dogs. Now, dogs in the ancient world were never pets. Dogs were, were filthy scavengers in the ancient world. They lived off the trash and refuse of human society. And so dogs were kind of the picture of what it means to be unclean. Paul's, Paul's doing some irony here. He's saying, here are these guys telling you they know how you can be clean with God and yet they're nothing more than filthy dogs. Because they practice self-righteousness, they're nothing more than dogs in God's sight. Uh, he, he backs that up in the second thing. He says they are actually workers of evil. Workers of iniquity, they're telling you how to be right, and yet they're just doing wickedness by promoting self-righteousness. He concludes by saying they are the false circumcision. It's actually an interesting play on words. Um, Paul doesn't use the word circumcision. Circumcision in Greek means to cut around. That's as much as I'm going to describe circumcision for you this morning. Instead of saying cut around, he says cut in pieces. It's a related word. His point is these guys who are telling you to cut around, to be circumcised, they're actually trying to cut you into pieces to destroy your life. Paul's point is Judaizers aren't just teaching something that's false. They're teaching something that is dangerous, that is incredibly destructive. So before we get on with the passage, we probably should ask, are we at danger from these guys today? Are Judaizers threatening our church, Southwood? Well, not exactly. Um, Judaizers fell out of favor a long time ago. They died out. Um, but the core of their teaching, the basic idea, is alive and present with us today. We call it legalism. Legalism is the belief that I can earn my way to God or I can earn favor in God's sights through works, through keeping my own list of religious rules. If I keep the rules, then I'm good with God. If I keep the rules, then I'm better than you. That's legalism, and that is alive and well in every church. It, it always is. That's, that's teaching that is always around. I, I think we struggle with it as much as they did. Anytime you look at another believer or even at yourself and you evaluate a person's worth based on how well they keep a list of rules, does A, does B, doesn't do C, doesn't do D, that's legalism. Anytime you you look at yourself and you think that that, that God's love for you is something that somehow you you merit through your works, that if you have a good day, you're a little closer to his love, if you have a bad day, you're a little further, that's legalism. I, I, to be honest, struggle with legalism myself, even though theologically I know that I am loved by God, that I have the righteousness of Christ, yet on many days I'm tempted to believe that if I do good today, somehow God will like me more. But if I blow it, he's going to like me less. That's legalism. That's saying that somehow through the quality of my day, I'm either drawing closer to God or further away. That's, That's legalism. Okay, so so Paul is, is very frustrated about legalism. He does not like the teaching of legalism. So he takes the rest of the passage to show how foolish it is, to show how legalism is false. And so I want us to look at Paul's answer to the false teaching of legalism. He's going to start in verses 3 through 7 um, by looking at our past. By looking at the beginning of our spiritual life, our justification, when God declared us righteous, when our spiritual life began, was it through works or was it through something else? And and we looked at a lot of the material here last week, so I'm going to kind of just review it. Paul starts in verse 3. Look in verse 3. Paul says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's point is to say, okay, who is in with God? Who is it that's right with God, that is just in his sight? Well, it's not those guys out trying to do their own works to earn their way to God. It's those who, who number one, they serve God out of God's own power. They're not relying on their talents, their abilities to somehow please God. They rely on God at work in them. Second, they don't put confidence in their flesh, in their own abilities and achievements. They put all their confidence in Christ. That's really the summary of what Paul has in mind. Uh, Those who please God, those who are in with God, are those who place 100% of their confidence in life in Jesus Christ. All of their confidence for getting into heaven, all of their confidence for being loved by God, all of it is placed in Jesus Christ, in what Jesus did on the cross and in the the resurrection, not in their own lives. That's kind of a summary of Paul's idea. But as we saw last week, Paul isn't content to just summarize his idea. He, he wants to go ahead and prove it. He offers proof of the foolishness of legalism. Look with me starting in verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found, Blameless. What Paul does here is he says, "Okay, let's let's prove that legalism is false. We'll do it by looking at me, at looking at at my life, because I am the legalism poster child." Is basically what Paul's saying. Before I met Jesus, I went further than anyone to earn my way to God. We we looked at some of the things Paul mentions last week that he has the best possible heritage. He was a Jew among Jews. From the best tribe, he, he was not only that, but he had a great education. He was a scholar of the Old Testament, he was a Pharisee. Not only that, but he had achieved much for God in life. As to the law, he was found blameless. Outwardly, he was completely righteous. And yet, what is his conclusion? Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's talking about that day when he was traveling to the city of Damascus and he met the resurrected Jesus Christ and all of a sudden he realized, Jesus really did die on the cross for my sins and rise from the dead and he is giving me infinite righteousness. He is offering me the gift of righteousness that he already died to secure. Paul realizes that everything I was trusting in, all those things listed in verses 5 through 6, those are worthless compared to what Christ has done. Not only are they worthless, they're actually a loss, a liability, a hindrance to me because for years they've blinded me to my desperate need for Jesus Christ. Paul's point is our spiritual life begins when we quit relying on our works, on our church attendance, on our efforts to get to heaven and please God and instead simply trust in the finished work of Christ. Trust that Jesus really did die for our sins and rise from the dead. That's that's God's message to you this morning. If you've not um, yet come to trust in Jesus for salvation, if you're still trying somehow to earn your way to heaven, to earn your way to God through your efforts, through doing more good than your neighbor, whatever it might be, God's message to you is is you can quit trying to do that. You'll you'll never get there through self-righteousness. You simply need to receive the gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. God right now offers you infinite righteousness forgiveness of your sins, eternal life with Him in heaven, if you will simply trust, believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You can quit trying to earn it. You can have it for free simply through faith. Okay, so our spiritual life, it it began with Jesus Christ. It began with faith in Him. But uh, the question comes up, now that we've begun with Christ, how do we grow? How do I continue in my spiritual life? How do I expand my spiritual life? Is this where works fits in? Having begun with Jesus Christ, now do I need to work, to grow up, to look good in God's sight? That's what legalism teaches. Legalists say, hey, it was great that you began with Jesus, but now if you want to be part of the big boys club, you do that through works. You do that through keeping rules. You do that by doing A and B and not C and D. That's how you look good in God's sight. That's the teaching of legalism. Okay, but but Paul won't have any of that. Paul doesn't agree with that. Now, our growth, the continuation and expansion of our spiritual life, it doesn't come through works. Look with me at verse 8. Paul continues, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let's pause there for a second. More than that, I count all things to be loss. Compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 8 is meant to be an intensification of verse 7. It it raises the stakes. Paul makes two shifts in verse 8. Number one, he moves from past tense to present tense. His point is to say, not only was Christ the only thing that mattered in my past, he's the only thing that matters in my present Not only did he bring my justification, but he brings my growth. So he switches from past tense to present tense. Second, he switches from talking only about the things listed in verses 5 and 6, his heritage, his education, his accomplishments, to talking about everything. He broadens the, the scope here. He says, out of my life, all of my life, everything other than Jesus, I count as loss compared to knowing him. And then uh, Paul focuses our attention particularly on, on this on this phrase, "knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul's using relational terms there. He, he's talking about a personal relationship here. He's not talking about knowing about Jesus, like knowing facts about Jesus. That's included. If you're going to know someone relationally, you need to know something about them. But he's talking about more than just facts. He's talking about a personal relationship. He's talking about experiencing a relationship with Jesus Christ like you would with someone else. Paul's saying that the thing that is of surpassing value in my life, that trumps everything, my job, my marriage, my home, my finances, everything, is my relationship with Jesus Christ. It trumps everything. It is of surpassing value. Uh, He goes on. we'll, We'll read the next little bit of this verse. We're kind of taking it in chunks He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Pause for a second. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul actually had suffered the loss of most everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's writing from prison. He's lost his freedom, his home, his finances, many of his friends, for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus, and yet Paul doesn't really care about all that he's given up because in comparison to the value of his relationship with Jesus, which the Romans can't take away, everything that he's given up is as valuable as rubbish. In comparison to knowing Christ, it is rubbish. And that's its a term, um, it's hard to talk about in a sermon, this term rubbish. Um, in English, it sounds just like rubbish. In, in Greek, it's actually a, a curse word. It's a vulgar term. It means human excrement. Paul includes this this word to be shocking. It's used nowhere else in the Bible. He, he concludes it to be shocking. His point is, everything else in your life, the good and the bad, all of it is nothing but human excrement compared to the value of your relationship with Christ. Now that doesn't mean that my marriage to Julie, my home, my job, are human excrement. It, it's a comparison here. It means compared to my relationship with Jesus, all of that is about as valuable as, as human excrement. What it's telling me is that if anything in my life comes in the way of knowing Christ, even something as wonderful as my marriage, then it's a detriment to me. Because nothing else can compare to the value of knowing Jesus. Nothing else can compare to drawing closer to him in our relationship with him. This is meant to be shocking. Jesus is the absolute number one priority in your life If it had to be him versus everything else, throw all the rest away. Because it is all worth excrement compared to knowing him. Okay, so Paul's making a pretty shocking claim here. Why is Christ so important? Why is our relationship with Christ really more important than our, than, than our, our, our marriage, our, our, our parenting, our home, our job? How can it trump everything else? Well, Paul tells us in the next few verses, he gives us four results that flow out of our growing relationship with Christ. If we pursue Christ, if we pursue this relationship with the giver of righteousness, what will happen in our lives? So let's look at these four results. We get the first in the end of verse 8. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. As we pursue Jesus Christ, as we grow in relationship with him, the first result is we gain more of Christ's benefits in our lives. Now this this term here, it's a little hard to comprehend. When when Paul says that I may gain Christ, he's actually doing a little word play on the accounting terminology of verse 7 that we talked about last week. His point is, at the moment that I, I trusted in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of my sins. Uh, God the Father wrote on my account ledger, Jesus Christ. Okay, he, he wrote in my gain column, Jesus. Okay, and that, that meant that I'm saved because Jesus is there. But for the rest of my life, I want to pursue Jesus more so that Jesus can expand to fill all of my gain column, so that all of Jesus' profits, all of his benefits can flood into my life and overwhelm me. Uh, here's a way to think about it. Um, when I was a kid, in elementary school, I, I got on, on Christmas morning my first computer, a Mac SE. Uh, looks outdated today. It was awesome back then. Um, incredible computer. I, I really loved it. Um, I got it on Christmas morning. So I received this great gift on Christmas morning. And yet, it took days and weeks and months for me to fully realize the benefits of a Mac. Okay? It, it took a long time for me to explore all that it could offer me. It took me time to find out, hey, I can do my homework on it can work on my Spanish learning on that. I I can play games on that. I can communicate with people far away on that. It took me time to flesh out all of the benefits that this computer offered me. That's what Paul's saying. I have Christ in my life the moment I trust in him, but only if I spend time with him day after day, week after week, year after year, can I fully realize all of his benefits in my life. Can I fully experience all of his blessings at work in my life? You you spend time with Christ because the more time you spend, the more wonderful you realize him to be. The more of his benefits, the more of his work in your life that you experience. So that's the first result. Pursue Jesus Christ as your first priority in life because the more you pursue him, the more you experience his benefits, his infinite grace in your life. That's the first result that comes. Second uh, thing that Paul says, second result he gives is verse 9. Paul says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This verse is a little challenging. The the transaction here, Paul receiving the righteousness of God through faith. That happened in the past. That happened at the moment that that Paul trusted in Jesus. And yet, verse 9 is in the future. It's talking about some future day. I think here's what Paul's saying. One day I'm going to stand before God. and He's going to evaluate my life. He's going to look at the quality of, of life that I lived once I trusted in Jesus. And what I want God to see is a man who was totally resting in the righteousness of Christ. Not a man who was trying to prop up his life with his own works and his own achievements, but a man who lived completely at peace in Jesus Christ. I think Paul wants to make sure that he doesn't hear God the Father say, Paul, uh, why did you waste your life? Why, once I had given you this gift of infinite righteousness, did you keep thinking you had to earn it? Why did you keep trying to do all these good works to please me when you were already infinitely loved in my sight? Why didn't you just rest in the righteousness of Christ? Why didn't you just pursue Him more instead of trying to prop up your life with your own works? Verse 9, it it really speaks to me, because again, this is where I'm tempted. This is how legalism tempts me. I know theologically that I'm righteous in Christ, and yet, day in and day out, I'm tempted to believe that if I have a good day, God will love me more. If I get a lot done today, if I serve Julie well, if I work hard at my job, God will love me more. Man, that is not true. If I live that way, then I'll get to heaven, and God will look at me and will say, Blake, why were you wasting your time? I already loved you infinitely through what Christ did for you. Because you had Jesus, you had all of my love. You were infinitely valuable in my sight. Why did you waste your time trying to earn what I'd already given you? So the second result that comes, if we will pursue Christ first in life, is that we will learn to live at rest in Him. We will learn to experience peace as we come to understand that we're already infinitely loved and infinitely righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus. It's the second result. Third result is verse 10. With we'll me at verse 10, Paul says... So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What Paul is is telling us here is a third result that comes. If we get to know Jesus more, we will become more like Jesus. This is actually a a very Old Testament idea. Uh, In the Old Testament, whenever someone was said to know God, it always meant that they also were like God. If you know God, you act like God. You value what God values. You practice what God desires. Uh, it's an oxymoron in the Old Testament to say that you know God, but practice wickedness. I think that the same idea is kind of in view in the New Testament. Jesus says in John fifteen ten, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, you can't lose your relationship with Jesus no matter what you do. No sin can forfeit your relationship with Jesus. The point of this is to say, if you really want to experience and grow in your relationship with Jesus, it requires obedience. To know Jesus means also to become like Jesus. Growth in relationship brings growth in conformity. The closer you come to Jesus relationally, the more you'll be like him. It's just a natural consequence. It's like two sides of the same coin. So Paul says, hey, I want to know Jesus more and more. I want to know him like my best friend. I know that that means that I'll become like Jesus. That will result. So I want to become like Jesus in every way. And Paul mentions three specific ways. Number one, I I want to, uh, as Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I I think what Paul is saying here, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He's saying uh, the same supernatural power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, I want to know that power. I want to experience that power in my life. Paul speaks about this same idea back in Romans. Chapter 6, he said, Therefore, we have been buried with him, that is Christ, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's point is, um, in our justification, we were identified with the death of Jesus. That's how we got forgiveness of sins. But from that moment on, the purpose of life is to get to know the resurrection power of Jesus, not just in the future being resurrected, but right now experiencing the supernatural power of God at work in our lives so that we can walk in newness of life. I was pointing to saying, I want to know Christ so much that I get to experience the supernatural power of God at work in me just as it was in him so that I can live a supernaturally righteous life. Avoiding sin, that's a supernatural thing. Loving your neighbor as yourself, that's a supernatural thing. Loving God above all, that's a supernatural thing. Paul says, I want to do all these things because I'm experiencing the resurrection power of Christ. That's the first thing. I, I want to be conformed to the supernatural power of Jesus. Second thing, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. Paul's saying, um, I, I want to experience the same kind of sufferings that Jesus did. Jesus suffered because of his faithfulness to God. Paul wants to do the same. Now, I don't think that Paul's saying that he's seeking out suffering. It's not that he wants to be in pain. Paul's saying, if I follow God, if I'm faithful to him, I know I will share in the sufferings of Christ. I will become like Christ in suffering. Now, um, how exactly does this one apply to us? None of us are facing prison for our faith. Well, we don't face a whole lot of human persecution for our faithfulness to the Father. A little bit, but not a lot we do face the same amount of spiritual attack. We face the same persecution from Jesus' ultimate enemy, Satan. A lot of us aren't aware of that. You may not be aware of that, but the moment that you decide to pursue Jesus Christ as your first priority in life, you put a big target on your chest. Satan is coming after you. He's already lost you to Jesus. Now what he cares about is destroying your life, putting you in pain, doing whatever it takes to wreck your life. So Paul is saying, it's not that I'm seeking that suffering, it's that in the midst of suffering, I find joy because it's allowing me to know Jesus more. Jesus suffered at the hands of Satan. When we suffer at the hands of Satan, we can have joy because we know this is making me more like Jesus. I'm getting to do what Jesus did. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's painful. But it's drawing me closer to him. And then finally, Paul wanted to be conformed to the death of Jesus. Paul wanted to be like Jesus in death. Now, I don't think Paul's talking here about literally dying, martyrdom. I think what he's talking about here is, I want to be conformed to the attitude that Jesus had when he died. Remember, that was a point of chapter two. We looked at chapter two last week. How did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross out of an attitude of selfless, humble obedience. Paul's basically saying, I want to be conformed to that same selfless, humble obedience that christ had that willingly dies to self that willingly sacrifices self for the good of others that's what i want to practice in my own life i think that's that's true for us the more that we come to know jesus the more that we will come to know and experience his attitude at work in us to know jesus means that just like jesus did we choose to die to self We choose to sacrifice our desires, our needs, our rights for others, for the good of others. That's what Paul's saying. I want to grow in that. I want to become more like Jesus in his death. Now, uh, when you look at these last two statements, suffering and becoming like Jesus in his death, to be honest, neither of those sound real fun. Um, Probably neither of us really want to suffer. Neither of us want to die to self. So uh, why exactly should we? Well, Paul answers that in the fourth result that he gives, verse 11 Result number four, Paul says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, in, in Greek, it's literally, so that somehow I might obtain to the resurrection of the dead. It's clearly conditional. Verse 11 is looking at something that Paul doesn't know. Will I attain this? I don't know. Now, you may be asking, "Wait, a minute, how can it be conditional when it's about the resurrection? Won't all believers be resurrected? Yes, we will. If you look at the end of chapter three, Paul says that in the future, all of us will be resurrected, will be conformed bodily to the glorious body of Jesus. I think what Paul's doing here is is revealed in the specific language he uses, which um, you don't get in the English translations. The word resurrection in your Bible, uh, it's actually the normal word in Greek for resurrection with a prefix added, out. It literally reads, I want to attain to the out resurrection from among the dead. Uh, That term, out-resurrection, is used nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in Greek literature, nowhere. So we don't have anywhere else to, to look, to turn to, to find out what it means. We have to use context. So I think what's going on here from the context is Paul's talking about some kind of reward. It's not simply that he wants to be resurrected. He knows he's going to be resurrected. Read verses 20 and 21. He knows that's coming. No, he wants to pursue Jesus Christ as his first priority in life so that in the future he can receive the reward of whatever this out-resurrection from among the dead is. I think the same idea is communicated in Hebrews Chapter 11 tells us, of Old Testament times, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were tortured, they willingly suffered persecution for their faithfulness to God. Why? So that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, it doesn't go on and describe it. What is this better resurrection? We don't know. Somehow, they were suffering because they believed that they would somehow be rewarded, honored by God at the moment of resurrection in a special way. Uh, a similar thing, I think, is going on at the end of Acts 7. Uh, we have a guy named Stephen who's a really faithful believer, and he is witnessing about Jesus Christ to a group of men who hate Jesus. So at the end of, of Stephen's words, at the end of his sermons, they pick up stones to kill him with, and as they do... Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what's interesting here, if you read the New Testament, Jesus is hardly ever mentioned standing in heaven. What is he usually doing? sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting on a throne. I think what Stephen is seeing here is that for a faithful believer dying in the moment of martyrdom, he looks up and he sees Jesus arise from his throne, stand up to welcome Stephen with special honor, some special commendation. I don't know if that's the case. We don't have a lot of details here. What I do know is Paul is saying, I pursue Jesus Christ first and foremost in my life because as I do, I guarantee that when I die, Jesus will reward me. He will make my sacrifice worth the effort. He will make all the pain and and even the martyr's death that I'm about to suffer worth the price because he will stand and honor me at that day that I see him. Okay, so Paul's point in verses 8 through 11 is that just as our spiritual life began with Jesus Christ, not with works, so it continues, so it grows through Jesus Christ, not through works. Through growing in our relationship with him. That is the essence of life. That is how we grow. That is our highest priority in life. Jesus Christ is everything to us because as we grow to know him more, number one, we gain more of his benefits in our life. We experience more of his blessings at work in us. Number two, we experience peace and rest as we learn to just trust in his righteousness. Number three, we become more like him holy, righteous, humble, sacrificial like him. We experience more of his power at work in us. And number four, when we die, we will experience reward and honor from God in the presence of Jesus Christ. So Paul's point, very simply, so far in chapter three, putting all this together, is Jesus Christ is number one. Jesus Christ is the biggest, most important priority in your life. Nothing trumps it. Don't let anything trump it. Knowing him is first and foremost in life. And so Paul's going to move on with that application. And the rest of the verses, 12 through 16, he's going to focus us on the application. If Jesus Christ really is the most important thing in life, then what should we do with that reality? Paul gets real practical, and that's where we're going to go here at the end of the sermon. How do we practically apply this? If knowing Jesus is the most important thing in life, what does that mean to us? Uh, Well, Paul wants us to really focus on Jesus. Look with me starting in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The the it of this verse, what he is pressing on to attain is simply knowledge and conformity to Christ. Paul is pressing on to fully know Jesus and be like Jesus in every way. His goal is Jesus Christ. He wants to be completely drawn close. He wants to know Jesus fully. He wants to be exactly like Jesus in every way. Paul hasn't gotten there yet, but that's what he's pressing on towards. What Paul is telling us is orient your life around this goal of knowing Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Actually, 12 through 16 uses a lot of marathon language, it's, it's actually very athletic language that's, that Paul is using there. His point is, this life is a race. It's a long race. What I want you to do is keep your eyes fixed on the, the tape going across the finish line, which is knowing and being like Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. That's your goal. Run towards Him. That's your highest priority in life. Don't let anything else trump it. Not your marriage, not your home, not your job, not your kids. None of that should trump your own relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on from there to give us more direct advice. He says, "Brother and I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is telling us here is if you, if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you got to quit looking at your past. If you want to get to know Jesus more, you have to keep your eyes focused on Him, not on your past. Now, the first thing that means is uh, don't keep your eyes fixed on your past failures. Don't don't get tripped up on your past failures. A lot of believers are not really pursuing Jesus Christ because they think they've already blown it. They think that they've already been disqualified. Man, because of sins, because of failures in life, they're unworthy. They they really, they're not the ones who should be pursuing Jesus. Their life is is lost. Paul's point here is no, no one is too far gone. As long as you are breathing you have hope of knowing and becoming like Jesus. No believer's too far gone. So quit worrying about your past failures. Confess your sins to God. Say, God, yes, I, I agree with you that I sinned, but then forget it. God does. He literally forgets your sins. So forget them. Don't focus on your past. Focus on the future. So not only quit looking at your past failures, but also quit looking at your past successes. I think for a lot of us in this room, maybe we're not getting tripped up by past failures. We're getting tripped up by the fact that we've done well so far in life. We're tempted to look at all that we've done, at how far we've come. Man, I'm pretty mature. And then we begin to coast. We begin to coast on those accomplishments, on that maturity that we have. And we're looking at our past instead of Christ. That trips us up. Paul's point is, hey, I'm not even there yet. Paul's saying, I haven't reached it. If I haven't reached it, you haven't reached it either. (laughs) So keep your eyes fixed forward. Quit relying on your past accomplishments and focus only on Christ. Every one of us in this room are in the same boat. We're neither too far gone nor already there. We are all called to fix our attention steadfastly on Jesus Christ, on knowing him more. So forget your past. Focus only on Christ. Third and final thing that Paul gives us as specific advice here is found in verse 15. He says let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, this prioritization of Jesus Christ. And if in anything else you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now what I want to point out to you in these two verses is is the fact that Paul switches off of himself to us. Let us run this race together. Let us pursue this goal. What Paul is telling us is that if you want to know Christ, don't try to do it alone. If you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, rely on the other people in this room. We do it together. We grow in Christ together. I was reminded of this. We had a bit of an exciting morning yesterday at Southwood. We had a lot of rain, as you know, like five inches on Friday night here and uh, then more inches last night, and uh, all that water flooded out, some rabbit dens, rabbit warrens, I don't know what you call them, Um, and they've just had their young, just had their babies. So yesterday morning, I was kind of going around campus looking, and and I found uh, these two little guys, a few week old little baby uh, cottontail rabbits. Uh, shivering. They were in the water, um, couldn't move, couldn't run from me, none of that. So uh, we we gathered them up and put them in a box with a towel, and they started to warm up. And what was remarkable was uh, after a few minutes, once they had warmed up enough where they could physically move, what do you think they did? Snuggled into one another. They became one rabbit. They huddled so incredibly closely together so they could share what limited body heat they had. And what that reminds me of is, man, that's, that's what the spiritual life is meant to be. Knowing Jesus is actually a team sport. We do it together as we huddle together to push one another on towards the goal of knowing Christ. I think that's especially true in your families, dads, moms. What are you doing to push your family on towards this goal of knowing Jesus Christ? Are you an encourager to your family, to your spouse, to your kids, to your friends to put Jesus Christ first? Or are you a distraction? When your roommate sits down to spend quiet time with God, do you um, leave them there or do you tempt them to play Xbox? When your family needs to spend time with God, do you turn off the TV and sit down with them and spend time in the Word? Are you leading your family towards Jesus Christ? We do this together. We all have responsibility to one another to remind one another, hey, knowing Jesus Christ, this relationship with Him is a first priority in life. Nothing can compete with that. So encourage one another towards that goal. So Paul doesn't end this theoretical. He gets very practical. I I want us to end with a few questions to consider this week. Now, you don't have to write these down. You can download uh, the PowerPoint from the website and get these questions um, at that time. And I want you sometime this week to to sit down with the Lord and just uh, meditate on these three questions. I want you to to ask yourself the following things. Number one, and be honest with this. No one else is going to see your answers. This is just between you and God, and he knows if you're lying. So be honest. Ask yourself, if I listed out my priorities, would knowing and becoming like Jesus be at the top? Would it even make the top five? Ask yourself that honestly. There's a lot of other priorities in life. Is Jesus at the top? Is my relationship with him priority number one, or are there other things that are distracting me? Uh, That leads to the second question, what other pursuits are distracting me from pursuing Christ more fully? Now, in this second question, you may find good things and bad things. There's good things that can distract us from knowing Christ more fully. Good things, as good as our marriages, they can distract us if we allow them. Is my marriage getting in the way of knowing Jesus more? Um, our jobs certainly. Am I so busy at work? Am I so stressed out at work that I don't have any time for Jesus Monday through Friday? So good things can distract us. Also, bad things can. Is my pursuit of Jesus distracted because I'm too busy pursuing sin? Because I'm caught up in a habitual sin that keeps causing me to stumble. Is that what is keeping me from knowing Jesus Christ more? So be, be honest about that. What is it that's keeping you from making your relationship with Jesus your number one priority in life? Uh, and then number three, get practical. What specific thing will I do this week to help me come to know Jesus better? Now that will flow out of your answers to the especially question number two. As I identify distractions, what can I do to move these out of the way and bring Jesus Christ forward? Now, in your relationship with Christ, I don't have a specific answer to number three because it'll vary from person to person. It'll vary based on where our relationship with Jesus is. But think about your relationship with him. What's keeping you from knowing him more? Is it that you really don't know a lot about him? You just know the basics. You don't know a lot of depth. If that's the case, then maybe the specific thing you can do this week is is grab a book that'll teach you some theology about Jesus. Charles Ryrie has a little book called Survey of Bible Doctrine. Great little classic. It'll walk you through the basic beliefs of Christianity. It'll give you some background so you know more about Jesus. So uh, perhaps it's, you don't know enough about him. Or, or perhaps the issue is, like we said earlier, there's some sin that's in your life that you're giving into over and over again, and it's keeping you from pursuing Jesus. If that's the case, a specific step may be find accountability. Get another believer who will ask you, how are you doing, and hold you accountable. Maybe you need a mentor. Someone who will help you learn to walk with the Lord faithfully in that area of life. Maybe you need to come talk to a pastor or a counselor. Get some specific help if, it, if it's an area of addiction. Do, do whatever it takes to overcome that sin and grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So whatever it is for you this week, my challenge to you is you meditate on these questions. Work your way through them and then focus on question number three. What exactly am I going to do this week? It's not enough to just say in your head, yes, Jesus, you are the number one priority in my life. We need to live that out. What exactly will you do this week to bring Jesus forward, to make your relationship with him more central in your life? Let's pray for God to to help us to see what exactly it is in our lives that we need help with to pursue Jesus Christ more fully. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much for this gift you've given us, a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, we can all confess right now, I'm sure all of us take Jesus for granted. We take our relationship with him for granted. None of us fully realize how incredibly, unbelievably, awesomely graced we have been that you have allowed us to know Jesus. Lord, we are, we are thankful. We're not thankful enough though, so we pray that you would grow our thankfulness, that you would help us to to move Jesus forward, to put him truly first in our lives because that's what he deserves. He is the essence of everything good in our lives. He is the foundation for all of our hopes. He is is the basis for for everything uh, that we count on, Lord. So please, Father, help us to walk with him. I, I pray specifically, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might convict each and every one of us in this room. Help us to see those things in life by name that are distracting us from Jesus. Help us to see exactly what it is that is keeping us from spending the time with him that we need to and and help us in the midst of that conviction to know what exactly we can do this week and in the coming months to put Jesus first, to focus on him more completely, to pursue him more fully. Please, Lord, help us to make this practical. This can be so esoteric. It can be so mystical-sounding, Lord, to know Jesus. Please make it concrete in our lives. Help us to pursue Jesus as our number one priority in life. I pray, Lord, that Um, As we do that, that you would make us a people who who so love Jesus that the world takes notice of that, that our neighbors here around Southwood would look at our lives and say, wow, those are people who who really love that guy named Jesus. Man, they they really desire him. I pray, Lord, that that might be true of us, that you would captivate us with the beauty and worth of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen. All right, go and, and do spend some time meditating on those questions this week. God bless you.